0: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Now this week's Book Shambles like all of the other Book Shambles ended up being much much longer than the version you're going to hear and uh, normally we do put out an extra-long version uh, at Book Shambles uh, for any of our Patreon supporters of Book Shambles. But this time we've actually turned it into an episode of Tips for Existence. So if you'd like to know more about that, go to cosmicshambles.com slash tipsforexistence where you can hear the full conversation that Eddie and I had as well as excerpts of the work of both him and James Baldwin. I hope you enjoy whichever version you listen to.
1: And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash shambles. Also to remind you that tickets are on sale now for Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, which returns to the stage, an actual stage, this December. We're back at King's Place for five shows. Robin is hosting every night. Lots of special guests as ever. Helen Chersky, Natalie Haynes, Izzy Sooty, Mark Watson, Andrea Seller, Chris Jackson, Pragya Agrawal. Jocelyn Bell, Burnell, Matt Parker, loads, loads more. All profits to charity, as always. Cosmicshambles.com slash 9lessons is where you can go for info and tickets. And just one last little thing uh, before we start this week's episode. Uh, No Josie on this week's episode. She was unfortunately travelling at the time we had to record this, so it's Robin Solo this week. Now, here is Robin and Eddie. (music)
0: I wanted to go back to that point in 2016. This book, as you said, comes out of, of despair and despair of the election of Trump. And I remember that night, you know, of being in contact with friends of mine across the US. And it was a big enough shock to be in Bristol in the southwest of England, I remember waking up, to actually be in the country, to have this sense of such an enormously regressive step. What were, I mean, how much of an expectation did you have that this, this was, was going to happen? And what were the first emotions when he did win?
2: I was actually on television. I was doing um, a segment on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, right? And I was calling the election, you know, on this progressive news television show. And, you know, I had been doing uh, commentary on MSNBC, Uh, And there was the kind of general consensus among uh, punditry that, you know, it was was going to be a landslide, that that the Republican Party was going to get uh, decimated with this this election. And I remember as we were sitting around the table and um, the numbers were coming in and all of a sudden there was this kind of, excuse my language, um, uh, muffled fuck. That just happened, right? And then it just sunk. It just settled in. And I was I was on television at the time, and after the the f bomb, the only thing I could say to myself in my head is, "I'd be damned. They've done it again." Um, and that was really the, the 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 mantra: "They've done it again." And I should have known better. They've done it again. Um, and so it was this kind of um, despair, disillusionment, a sense of responsibility given my own critique of, of, of Clinton and, and others. Um, and then trying to figure out how can I give, and this is personal to me, how can I offer my son resources to navigate what's coming? Because this is about to get really ugly. So there were these levels. So on the one hand, I'm, at a, I'm, I'm a kind of pundit and I'm commentating on, uh, on, on, on the election, on election night. And the other, I'm a Black man in the United States trying to make sense of my own political choices in the moment. And then I'm a parent, right? Worrying about uh, what my uh, uh, college-age son uh, will now have to face. And it was all happening at once. So after I left uh, the studio in New York, I just remember pouring a stiff-ass Jameson, right, and just drinking a lot.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. just, I mean, that's one of the things you say there about thinking about your own criticism of Clinton and things like that. It does seem that what we've seen both in the UK and US politics is that anyone who does wish to dream at a reasonable size in terms of progress is always being beaten down and saying, no, 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 and it's something that you talk a lot about in the book is is, is that bit of saying, hey, 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 slow down. And it gets slower and slower. And we now see, you know, our our opposition in in, in the UK is currently in this very weak state, this very uninspiring state. Um, You know, and and when and I have to admit, when I first saw that Biden was chosen, I was like, oh, my God, God, another old white guy. Is that really? I know that. But it's and. How do you feel, now, again, in terms of your passion and your beliefs of where we can go, that bit of going, I still want to go for the real possibility of change, not this kind of, you know, the, the, the centrist ideal, which seems to become quite dominant on what, what might be called the left.
2: Well, you know, if the age of Reagan or neoliberalism or however we want to describe it, Thatcherism in all of its, in all of its iterations, if it's collapsing in front of us, then the party's response to it must collapse as well what do i mean by that if the age of reagan is collapsing then the democratic party that was constituted to respond to it must collapse because it's been defined by the assumptions of reaganism just like you know labor tony blair's labor party right it it is it is its basic features uh, uh, are are rooted in a political reality that has revealed itself to be bankrupt, right? Because, you know, what it, what is clear to me and I hope it's clear to others is that whether you're black, brown or white, whether you're working poor or working class, the reality of the current state of affairs is that you're suffering that the world as it is, is is in jeopardy precisely because of the policies of the last 40, 50 years. And so part of what I've been doing uh, in my own public witness um, is to understand Biden for who he is uh, as this kind of transitional figure in the midst of the collapse. Um, He's going to represent these moments where there are attempts for retrenchment right, rear guard actions to reconstitute the status quo. But it's important given over 600,000 dead because of COVID uh, in the United States um, that we stabilize as much as we can as we imagine a different future. So we have to keep pushing, you know, keep pushing as hard as we can. So the other day, for example, I was on, uh, I was asked to speak Uh, on on a particular news show about the Voting Rights Act and and the For the People's Act. And I was like, the generous read is that the Republicans in the United States see voting as an existential issue given the demographic shifts. And Democrats see it as a process issue given their, their concern about the filibuster and the like. The cynical read is that politicians understand that expanding the vote jeopardizes their position whether you're Republican or Democrat. So you have Democrats who are invested in their incumbency, who are very scared of what for, what the For the People Act will unleash. So I think it's important for, for me uh, to, to, be, to give you the short answer, to be mindful of the limitations of Biden, why he's here, but we gotta continue to push for fundamental um, uh, transformation. We have to continue to push for uh, a radical democratic imagination in this moment. Otherwise, we're just going to uh, find ourselves on this racial hamster wheel, on this hamster wheel, uh, again and again and again, running in circles.
0: So it's interesting when you say that, it's something that came, I, I watched, watching and listening to some interviews of you, and, and something that just kept striking me was The fact that we so often give people the benefit of the doubt that an argument is within good faith, in particular, I was watching some of the stuff you did around critical race theory, where, you know, someone Mm -hmm. sits opposite you and they say, but there are many people against this. And you think, well, actually, you know, what many people are against is what they've read or heard said on the news stations. They don't know anything about critical race theory. And this is again, the, the, as was we. I sometimes feel any nation that basically has Murdoch in control of the media, yeah. uh, we see an incredible collapse of 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 hopes of proper democracy because it's very hard to have a democracy, as you know much better, you know, where misinformation is perpetually used if a very few people have control of the megaphone. And and I watched so many interviews with you where I thought that you are speaking with, with real faith and belief, and that person opposite you is not. They're pretending that they're a bit worried and they're sceptical of this. And we see this language as well with anti-vaxxers. We've seen this language with Brexit in the UK and, and on a lot of different issues of things like race and in, in trans politics as well, where everything's played as if this is just comes from a kindness and concern. And then you realise it comes from somewhere much deeper in terms of its ideology.
2: Yeah, it's one of the um, insidious features of liberalism, more broadly, right? So there's this um, there's this feature of liberalism, and I and you know this I should say this uh, up front that Baldwin was as was as skeptical of liberals as he was of of racist, loud racist. He says, "I'm skeptical of people who want to do something for me as opposed to with me." And so there's this sense in which um, um, uh, this tinkering around the edges, but leaving the fundamental inequality intact, this this sense that um, we can have reasoned deliberation about my humanity, right? As as if that's possible. You know, in 1829, uh, David Walker published David Walker's appeal in response in part to Thomas Jefferson's notes, where Jefferson thinks out loud about black inferiority as being based in biology. And Jefferson writes in the notes, well, maybe this will be settled on the operation table. And 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 David Walker in 1829 says, how do you respond to that rationally? Hmm. How do you respond to that when you're treating us like dogs, right? So there are these moments in the public debate where folks are trying to, um, Uh, question in so many ways, right? Our basic humanity, whether you're black, whether you're uh, 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 undocumented or whether you're trans and they want to question your basic humanity and they want to do so in a way that that demands that you respond reasonably as opposed to fuck you, you know, In, in that sort of way. And so oftentimes it's very difficult in these sorts of spaces to then say, you're not engaging me in good faith. So why do I, why am I expected to respond to you and you know, uh, as if you're offering a reasonable argument when the argument is not the issue, the issue is me, right? That's what's really bothering you, me. And and critical race theory is just this, uh, you know, branding of all that these people think is bad about the current moment they feel as if they're being displaced demographically and they feel that they're being replaced historically historically so these this is just a different front of the same argument in the united states and the fact that people want to robin excuse me for going on about this but the fact that people want to engage this as if it's a reasonable and good faith argument is part of the problem as opposed to calling it what it is, if that makes sense.
0: I think COVID is highlighting these things in other ways as well, which is how other people's grievances are monetized. And those people who monetize from those grievances are not offering anything back apart from further incitement. And that's the bit which I, I I, I suppose that's the bit that is almost, it's almost more despairing than just going, to me, this, this person is fueled by hate. The fact that they're fueled by a lust for money and power and hate is merely the useful tool that seems to make it the ugliness there and the cognitive dissonance required amongst so many people which becomes so malformed so hard to see how that can be held together i mean i don't understand i mean that's why i would love to you know when thinking about those things and thinking about that despair and that point after that election result when you turn to James Baldwin, you know where were you going first? what, what were the what, what were the, the words, the essays, what were the things you went? this is this will help propel me. this will help move me from the fear of stagnation.
2: I was I had been teaching No Name in the Street for about 20 years. and Baldwin published No Name in the Street in 1972 and it's the first book after King's assassination. And Baldwin had collapsed after that murder, tried to commit suicide in 69, found himself in Istanbul, kind of that nexus between East and West, Um, really thinking about how to pick up the pieces, not only of himself, of his own life, but in response to a movement that was collapsing right in front of him, right? And so I had been trying to figure out the riddle that was No Name in the Street. Because I taught No Name and Fire Next Time together all, for all of these years, and it just dawned on me: this, at the level of form and substance, this was Baldwin's answer. Right? That this, 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 um, these aftertimes that I used to, 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 from, from Walt Whitman. How do we respond in the midst of the collapse? How did he respond as he saw Reagan on the horizon? How did he respond as he saw the hard hat rebellion, you know, uh, the, 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 the riots against bo- uh, busing in Boston? You know, he literally saw in real time the country turn its back on the promise of the of, of, of the civil rights and black power era. Um, and for I should be clear that for many of the proponents of black power, Ronald Reagan was as notorious as George Wallace, you know. So George Wallace was the villain for the civil rights era, but Ronald Reagan was the one who put Angela Davis on on the list, was the one who who attacked the Black Panthers and the like. Ronald Reagan represented all that was wrong, and the country elected him, right? And and so Baldwin in 72 sees this on the horizon. He sees the carceral state on the horizon because he knows what the Safe Streets Act, of 1968 passed by Lyndon J. Jones, what that's going to do. He understands what that piece of legislation is going to unleash. Um, in some ways, No Name in the Street is perhaps the first book in carceral studies in the United States. And so what I decided to do, because um, I had fallen to pieces, was to to return to what Jimmy called the rubble of his work, the ruins, and to figure out how he picked up the pieces. And what resources might I have right, uh, to do the same? And let me say this, too, really quickly. Um, this was happening at the same time that activists in Ferguson were showing up dead. All of those young people who put their lives on the line uh, in the streets, they were showing up in their cars, uh, uh, cars burned up, some hanging from trees. Um, police were calling these suicides, but no one knows. No one's really convinced. And I was just trying, okay, I gotta write something for these kids. I gotta write something for me in a moment that it seems so dark. And so I turned to Baldwin in his dark moment. And what I got was you have to be angry and you have to bear witness. You have to tell the truth. You have to open up space for the imagination to work because in dark times, they try to shut it down. They try to close off our ability to see beyond the opacity of now. And so I just dove into his work and and it's really crazy, Is looking back on it. Then in the midst of that insanity, I I dived into the chaos of Baldwin's life and I barely survived it. I barely survived it um personally um it took a it took everything out of me to be honest with you uh to get the book on the page um to get the thoughts on the page
0: it seems to me. yeah it's it's interesting one of the stories that really stuck with me is because we're so used to seeing james baldwin with his his incredible eloquence and passion and then just that one story of the time that he threw a glass at a waitress in princeton because, and, and that because I think sometimes perhaps we can easily just turn him into this this, this, this this wonderful, sophisticated figure and and almost and even though there is almost he writes anger mm-hmm. so beautifully as well that sometimes you almost forget about the
2: anger that is actually <laughs> there and what it really is about. It, that is such a wonderful point. Um, I, I write in the book rage likes to killn. Right. You can't run past it. And Baldwin says, you know, uh, in what, the price of the ticket, that he had to leave the U.S. because in 1948. He had to leave because if he didn't leave, he was either going to kill somebody or someone was going to kill him. And this is part of the ongoing reflection on, on his father's life or his stepfather, but I don't call him a step, his father, right? The ongoing reflection on what his father, stepfather's life modeled. Right. In the early Baldwin, he's very condemnatory, right? He his father believed what the world said about him. He would he succumb to self-hatred and the like. Right. By the time you read the later Baldwin, he's much more generous. His father is is not so much um it's not so much that he succumbed, his father is a victim of this place in some ways, right? And Baldwin felt that the rage, um that consumed his stepfather, that drove his stepfather mad along with the tuberculosis was also driving him mad. And so he wanted to find, you know, as that moment, as he said in the Buckley debate, you know, the daily cuts, right? The daily cuts that remind you that you're less than, that you're less valued, right? The, The daily humiliation, the generalized sense of disregard. No one event causes a riot. It's accumulated dishonor. That's it's accumulated experiences of dishonor that this trigger, triggers. That's Aristotle. That's not. That's not any. That's not you know black power or bald. that's. We go back to Aristotle to talk about accumulated the effects of accumulated accumulated disregard. Um, and so the rage is necessary because it reveals a moral center. If you're walking around this world and you're not angry, what the hell is wrong with you? That doesn't mean the anger is where you rest, where you stop. No, 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 no. But the anger, you have to be. Otherwise, something has been deformed and distorted in you. And so Baldwin is is constantly making that known. I mean, he's placing it in the foreground, right? Because he begin he begins with the the assumption that if we're going to say anything about the world and the messiness that is the world, we have to deal with the messiness of our interior lives. We got to deal with the ugliness of who we are. We got to confront this, right? And so. You know, finding comfort and safety. Oh, Baldwin hates that word, safety. Finding safety in our illusions and legends. Oh my God, no, no, no. So the rage lights the kill, right? And but you put it so beautifully, right? He he's such a master of craft that, you know, the sentences that are angry, you know, they drip with love. Mm. You know, even when he's rage full. You know he's loving. You know. That's a hard thing to that's a hard thing to achieve on the page, it seems to me.
0: Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Jose and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth. How do you keep your focus how do you have are there any particular kind of exercises of of of, of the mind where you think right this is the issue this is what i had and i think the book is tremendously focused in particular as you mentioned before that idea of confronting our own ugliness and that seems to be the 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 the, the weakness you say people who have power well they don't want to change anything and they and they can and and so they can very quickly spin around the fact that hey you know all this talk here about those things that happened there and those lynchings that happened i mean that's so long ago now you know and they can bring all that in and they can say you know what those guys are doing they're all making you the bad guy and then mm-hmm. once we think i mean i think this is a problem with with patriotism i mean i think i'm i've never been particularly patriotic but i realize that if your identity is particularly rooted to a a certain notion of what it was to be white in America. That if you are then being delivered, here's some information which shows you about some of the things that were going on and as, as you, you talk about, ah, oh, forgotten, ah, oh, terrible. Uh, North Carolina, uh, Dorothy, um, Dorothy. Oh, dar-
2: ca- Counts.
0: Yes, you know, mm-hmm. someone shows you that footage and the horrific, nate a 15-year-old girl trying to walk to to school being spat on till her her dress drenches and to have been trained that the first reaction is to feel offended that you're being called a villain as opposed to the first reaction being why the hell does something like that happen and how do our minds become so sullied
2: yeah there's always this kiss worry that you know to tell the truth uh is a kind of indictment and conviction of you you know and and the first thing you want to do is that's not me you want to create the distance um and think melodramatically right that they're they're obvious heroes and heroines right we want to think about the villains right very clearly though the villains are over there i'm not that and so the moment we're confronted with the historical record and the present reality you know the gut instinct is to distinguish uh the villains right to say those are the bad people and when you think melodramatically you know you want to think about heroes and villains as opposed to thinking about how we're all implicated uh in in the reality that we're we're, that we're disclosing that in the reality that we're disclosing so um uh so that is that's all the more important right in 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 a moment where uh Everything you're being inundated, and you're being asked to respond to everything in a world that's collapsing. Right. I mean, and so you find yourself, your head is on a swivel because everything around you is collapsing. And so you ask the question how does one stay focused in this, in in such a space? Um, I'm not sure you know what does it mean to kind of be committed to a just world uh, and what does that look like uh in terms of one's daily living what does it mean to find one's elsewhere as i write in the book so that so the world as it is doesn't consume you because it's a long distance run so you got to find those commu- that community of love the community of folk around you who who will allow you to laugh full belly laughs and to and to shout and cuss at the at the top of your lungs, and when your knees buckle, they got your back, so that then you can replenish and then re-enter. So th- those you know folks who allow you to free, to refocus. I've been in a reading group for the last two years. It's been amazing. Um, since COVID hit, uh, the reading group includes Cornell West and. Uh, my friends from uh, from Morehouse, who one's the chair of the philosophy department at Vanderbilt, the others the chair of African American Studies at Rhodes, another is a law professor at Harvard, and and we've been reading. We started with of all things, Thomas Hardy's *Jude the Obscure*. We've read we've read *Turgenev's Fathers and Sons*. We've read Virginia Woolf, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Octavia Butler. Uh, we're going to be talking about. Um, uh thomas mann's death in venice uh tomorrow on saturday and we have our drink and for two hours every two weeks we retreat from the world into our books and we just laugh and talk about literature and then i go back to what i'm doing cornell goes back to what he's doing you know um and it it allows us to refocus because again it's a it's not a it's not a sprint what we're doing right it's a long distance run and we're gonna have to and actually it's a relay so we probably won't cross the tape
0: i'm I'm (laughs) impressed by the fact that during a pandemic where people you know existential anxiety sometimes moroseness and melancholy to start with thomas hardy's jude the obscure which is you know it's not a gig it's, it's a masterpiece but it's 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 not the book that's got the giggles in it you know, no man.
2: <laughs> we read Chekhov's The Student. Uh and you know, it's one of the one of the most it is to my mind the most extraordinary short story ever written. And you know, you just kind of just come out of it blinking, you know, repeatedly. Or to confront Bazarov, right? in fathers and sons, and you know, you have this modern character who's com- who's committed to what science offers, but then love tears his behind up at the end, right? And so, you know, but this is part of what it means to deal with the quality of being human, right? Not in a time of cholera, but in a time of a pandemic, you know. To echo, you know, to echo Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? Ours is a time of, 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 intense darkness, and so we have to figure out how to generate some light in the midst of it, you know. And that will focus you it seems to me, to go back to
0: the question. Uh, it's interesting. When you bring up stories, I think, is such a... Because that, to me, again, seems to... It, it's something that I've, I've only... Learned. There's a great collection called uh, Others, uh, which is um, edited by a guy called Charles Fernhoff, who's who's up in um, uh, at Durham University. And it's just lots of people with very different kind of experiences because of culture, race, religion, disability. And each one is... And, and the power of the story that they tell sometimes they they write a fictional story and sometimes it's the story of their own life and I remember reading that and suddenly also going oh man I really haven't read enough female authors I need to just Mm. say this year you're not allowed to read male authors that's and you mentioned Octavia Butler who I've only come to quite recently and uh, just the 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 beauty in that but that to me I'm, I'm wondering how much hope there is now we're starting to see in the mainstream again because people have found out they make money from it which is great so suddenly you do have mainstream marvel movies where you have all mainstream star wars movies where in terms of cultural backgrounds in terms of sex race and gender you have anyone can be the hero but this has only mm-hmm. happened it's really happening at the end of the last decade and this decade and it does seem that that importance of the story is something that perhaps
2: can propel
0: us a little bit yeah. further
2: in terms of progress you know, in, in the U.S., Madison Avenue has figured out the demographic shifts a long time ago. And it's in some ways, the the changing in the advertising landscape is driving the anxiety in the country. Uh, Americans in these rural spaces, in these all-white enclaves, watching Cheerios commercials with mixed-race couples and, and racially ambiguous children, or same-sex couples and, and the like, and going, oh, my God, the country has gone to hell, we're Sodom and Gomorrah, you know this sort of thing. So it so the demographic shifts are, are, are clear, you know, the census data just came out in the US uh, a couple of days ago, earlier this week, showing that for the first time in the history of the country, the white population has decreased as the Hispanic population has 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 ballooned and African-American population uh, has remained steady, as well as Asian-Americans just an uptick just a bit. So the demographic shifts have happened. Right. And, you know, the kinds of stories we tell I just finished reading a wonderful uh, manuscript by um, the reporter Wajahat Ali uh, who grew up in the bay area as this Pakistani Muslim and it's an American story right but it's an American story without without the, the safety of the legends you know but at the same time I think stories offer us and you know this is a book lovers podcast right so the stories stories themselves offer us a way of seeing ourselves and seeing the world in much more expansive terms. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson says that God speaks to us through our imaginations. Right. And you know, whenever I tell my students that I said, well, if that's true, then what is the devil doing? Right. You know? And so in the midst of this, I finished Milkman. Um, I don't know if you've read Milkman by Anna Burns. No, I, it's right within my reach. She won the Booker. Um, and it's this irish novel right and and what's so fascinating about milkman is that every sentence carries the burden of gossip and paranoia so it's it's hard it's hard reading but it makes freaking sense right or i read um shuggie bane by oh, douglas so
0: Stewart. great yeah yeah yeah
2: it Her first novel,
0: how how annoying is that? How (laughs) dare you write that?
2: And what's so amazing, right? You know, the first out of the blocks, he describes this card game with these women and the level of detail that this man draws in terms of the way in which he draws these female characters. And you go, oh, okay, I'm into something. And then the rape scene. And then boom, boom, boom. It's just, oh. And so what, what What? the stories do, not only stories of our pain and our dysfunction and our sorrow and our loss, but stories of our joys, however momentary. Stories of our differences and what emerges in the midst of the differences, right? Offer us resources to imagine ourselves otherwise. Mm. Right? And that's and that's revolutionary in these moments. Because the Murdochs want us to be stuck right where we are. The Boris Johnsons and the Donald Trumps and the Mitch McConnell's and 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 and, and these men and some women who traffic in evil, they want you to be comfortable right where you are. Mm-hmm. And if we read stories, oh my goodness, right? stories that tell the truth even in fiction about the human drama now we have the tool chest we have the toolkit to do that hard work of living you know you see you got me excited Sorry. <laughs> See, but Sh- Shuggy
0: Bane is because I think I mean, it's, it's interesting mentioning Shuggy Bane and then also thinking of the year before it's Bernardine Evaristo who won. And already that then led to lots of elderly male authors saying, I mean, it just seems impossible for people like us. You know that the, two years in a row, the fact you've got, a you know, uh, a, a middle aged gay man, you got Bernardine, that that that's it. It's like now. Oh, well, this, this is unfair, isn't it? Yeah. And and you can't read those books and say, I don't think, I, I think it's, I think you have to go into them with a lot of uh, kind of your own ideological perspective to read those books and not say, ah, oh, these are worthy of a victory in something like this. And also, you, actually, sorry.
2: Yeah, no, go ahead. No, please.
0: No, I just, I was really, because one of the things that I thought, Shoggy Bang made me think about the importance of the fact that that book did need to have. This is a spoiler alert, but it's not a spoiler for anyone listening. It just don't worry about this, but it's such a minor thing. But it has it has optimism. And even in its cause sometimes it reminded me of like a Zola novel. It reminded me of those kind of you know, you start reading a novel by Zola and then you go, Oh my god, this is not going to get better and I've got four hundred more pages. He's already an alcoholic, <laughs> she's having to work <laughs> as a prostitute, you know, all of that so, yeah, But Yeah with meant though he and and it Maybe th- that importance of sometimes going there has to be optimism here as well. there has to be some hope in this for the reader
2: you know, and I make a distinction between hope and optimism. so optimism, you know, this is not Voltaire's Candide, this is not Pangloss, right? You know this is the best of all possible worlds and da-da-da. no 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 hope the hope in, in Shogi Bain to me is is blues soaked. It's a hope, not hopeless, but unhopeful. Mm. Right? That's a that's a quotation from Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk. So that's a blues-soaked hope. BB King's line: "Nobody loves me but my mother," and she could be jiving too. You know. And so at the end, of, I don't want to tell talk about the end of the novel. There, there is hope there, but it's it's blues-soaked. It's blues-soaked. The encounter with the mother, the encounter with the friend the friendship oh my god right but but you know it's so you know and i just the two novels i mentioned this anna burns is irish uh uh, stewart's novel scottish right and you know it's it's fascinating you know these old white men saying i'm i can't find myself here here i am a black guy from mississippi right in the united states finding something about the human experience in these texts just as i find something in togernia or i find something in joyce or you know um uh, or even in thomas hardy right something that speaks to what it means to try to figure out how to live from the moment i was born in the world between piss and shit and the moment i'm going to leave between piss and shit right and so what is this idea that you're going to have to i can only read something that i could see me in it when in fact, you as me, as a human being, trying to make sense of living in the world, right? So I don't, I used to tell my students all the time, I don't get the jokes in Dead Souls. I don't get it in Google's Dead Souls, that it just goes, but there's something about the book. Hmm. There's something about the inquisitive the section in Dostoevsky that says something to me, right? So what is it about, I can't, we'll never win, ah you're revealing some commitments that we need to interrogate here. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, because you got to, I, I tell everyone, I remember my colleague Imani Perry recommended, you know, Shuggy, Shuggy Bane to me. And I read the first two chapters and I called her and I said, what the hell have you done? Why didn't you tell me that this was this dark? She said, oh, I'm sorry, just keep reading. And I had to, t- you can't you can't engage in surface reading of that novel man no
0: <laughs> not
2: at all i'm sorry we're going off the top. no
0: don't <laughs> worry till the uh um I'll, I'll we. do you know what i've, I've got some notes here i i sure. wrote 40 questions but we're not going to get to them so let's not worry about <laughs> that now uh that's i do this every time we get the uh i love the. you, you mentioned I uh, the history is lies agreed upon that's You know just that that, there is so much uh with the i'm not even going to try and deal with these things actually because we we it it is not it it wouldn't be fair because there's you write so brilliantly i think also about things like you know the way that baldwin's queerness also was for some people a huge problem within things like the black power movement and you know he would sometimes it's an interesting thing isn't it where sometimes what is seen by society as, as the false mistake or disease that someone's someone carries with them and that new narrative where more and more people are saying this is my superpower this is that 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 the keys to heaven gates to hell scenario is everything that is the worst of my life is also the thing that may well be sometimes fuel the fire of my life as well and I think yeah, that, you know, that seems to play so much in in the way that you write about Baldwin as well
2: yeah there was an interview I can't remember he was in he was in England it was an interview with uh, a, a theater critic, I think. And she said, you know, you were born black, poor, and gay. You must have had a, you know, you know, basically in effect, you must have thought you had were, was born into a horrible life. And he said, no, oh, I hit the jackpot. <laughs> you know, in some ways, right? And so here's this guy. And, you know, when I interviewed Angela Davis for the book, um, she talked about, and you know, I love the way Angela Davis responds to Baldwin. She turns into this little girl, right? She just starts smiling and giggling and it's just really beautiful to see. And she said to me, in so many ways, he was out there all by himself. So imagine the second novel in the 1950s is Giovanni's Room. I mean, just imagine. it took so they wouldn't publish it in the U.S. he has to get it published in London right and he says you can hold it over my head I told you (laughs) so this over and over again I just witnessed in his life acts of enormous courage um a willingness to deep sea dive in his own contradictions um that um is rare and damn it it could drive you all close to madness if you pay too much attention to it right cuz you know one of the things i know and i know we have to go but one of the things that baldwin kept asking of me as i was writing the book and i so appreciate you you guys you know recognizing acknowledging it for this conversation so just thank you but one of the things that baldwin Baldwin made me question the scaffolding of my own life, because he kept demanding a certain kind of honesty, right? And I've said this in many interviews, and I was just like, you know, you could tell he was, you know, sometimes you 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 worried that he was being a bit narcissistic because you know he wants you to be honest and honest, and sometimes you got a lot of people that you love, right? And there's this moment in the conversation debate with Nikki Giovanni. Or conversation with Nikki Giovanni, he's talking about what he has to do as a Black man and go off and work and he has to deal with. And then Nikki Giovanni says, When you come home, lie to me. And Baldwin looks confused and he's like, What do you mean? She says, Lie to me. You come home and you take it out on me, but lie to me. Right? And it was a salvation moment for me because Nikki Giovanni, this brash poet, she was young at the time, gave me license to say, Jimmy, stop leave my life alone right now i i need this leave me be and i was able to survive it all i guess with that <laughs> that moment that's oh,
0: well, it's uh, it's a brilliant it was actually it was a, it was great when i found out that when trent said that, that you wanted to do this because your book was the very first book that i bought when bookshops opened again uh, oh. After lockdown, I went. I went into. I had no idea this. This obviously this, this was a few months ago, and I went into to the local bookshop. I was like, oh, I can browse again properly. It's not the same doing it online. And the first thing that I saw, I went, "Oh wow, there's a new book about James Baldwin. I'm going to have to read this." And so uh, I'm glad that the first book out of lockdown, also that we've had a chance to. Thank
2: you.
0: Thank you so much for
2: uh... Trent. Thank you guys. I, I no, had thank blast. you very much. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you very much for listening. Eddie's book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own is out now. So make sure you go to your favourite independent bookshop or wherever else you get books to grab yourself a copy. It is a brilliant book. Remember, an extended version of this interview along with lots of clips and everything else is available on the tips for existence podcast on our patreon that's patreon.com slash book shambles hope you enjoy that we will be back next week with a new episode remember to subscribe and like and rate five stars and all that on apple podcasts and spotify and wherever you listen to book shambles and also check out all of our other podcasts on the cosmic shambles network like science shambles and and Uncanny Hour, and Brain Yapping, and Wife on Earth, and all of those. Until then, take care, have a great week, and bye for now.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book, Shambles, was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.